0: Those of you who don't know me, my name's Chris Taylor. I'm one of the elders here. I'm uh, honored to preach today. Thankful. text today is matthew 4 1 through 11 if you want to turn your bibles to that i'd appreciate it and you can read with me i am reading out a new american standard so maybe a little bit different than yours but i got saved in 73 and new american standard was the hot bible to have so now some people say it's a little wooden in its literacy <laughs> but i like that because i like the greek so it makes me do a little more work but Thank you, Joel, for leading worship and the worship team. Songs were delightful. Aaron, for reading the word with us today with a good exhortation. I heard that exhortation. I said, I'm just going to get down. I'm not going to say nothing. He did it. Home run. And the prayer, what a blessing. Today, we're going to explore the nature of temptation, sort of make, do an anatomy of temptation because Jesus Christ is our example, right? He's a forerunner who went before us as the true son of God. And we can look at his wilderness experience almost like an archetype, like a a pattern, if you have it, of how temptation goes. And if the son of God went through it, surely we can and we can gain some understanding. So I'm going to read the text real quick and then we'll start. Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became, then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, sort of a touche there, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister him. This is God's word. Let me pray with me real quick. Lord, we need your help. I need your help, Lord. I feel so humbled to be standing before this congregation to preach your word, Lord. And I pray for your spirit to come upon all of our hearts, Lord, truly, for apart from your spirit, apart from your grace, no word would be planted, no word would sprout, no word would grow and bear fruit, Lord. So we need your grace tonight, today. And all our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, today I'm hopefully going to focus on the anatomy of temptation. But first, in this text, we I want to show you three absolute realities, sort of like temptation or the walk of our walk with God from a thirty thousand foot view. And I would summarize them this way: a way, a war, and a weapon. It's interesting, all the songs today were so appropriate because we talked about the way and we talked about a battle and an adversary armed with cruel hate, and we also talked about our weapon, the Word of God. What's remarkable about the three synoptic Gospels, they all record the Spirit impelling Jesus into the wilderness right after His baptism. And like I said earlier, this is sort of like an architect archetype. It's sort of a pattern for us to look at life to some degree. And I think the lesson in the way is that before fruitful ministry, before Christ Jesus can enter into ministry and blessing, he is first thrust into the wilderness of deprivation, of lack, retrenchment, crisis, trouble, Loneliness. So, too, the pattern is for us that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, will lead us into trouble. Second, there's a war. In the wilderness, we meet our adversary, the devil. Devil means at its root, in the Greek, means split. Thus, the orientation of the devil is always to to alienate us from God, from one another. And as the song said, he's armed with cruel hate. And I don't think that's an understatement. We have an adversary, the devil, who's out prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But his first intent, I think the Bible makes clear is to alienate us from God primarily, hear me, primarily by sowing doubt and distrust in his word. Satan's intent as our adversary is to alienate us from God by sowing doubt and distrust in his word. And we see this in the serpent's very first words in Genesis 3. He says, Did God really say? And he poses a question to Adam and Eve, did God really say You shall not eat from every tree of the garden. And he plants the doubt in Adam and Eve's heart about God's goodness, about his word, about his command in the garden. And he's been saying the same thing ever since. And there's no exception here in the wilderness. Alec Moutier in his great book, Look to the Rock, comments on this. He says, there is nothing truer to the portrayal of Satan than a determination to undermine the Word of God to get people to live on any other basis than Revelation. Like I said, that is exactly what the serpent has been saying ever since. And that's what he did in his first appearance in the garden. Motyer continues, if Satan can get the woman and... Adam, by inference, standing there, to make a mini-assent to the proposition that life in the garden is restrictive rather than free, and that the sanction of death can be discounted, then maybe she will nod also to the possibility that God is not all he purports to be, that posing as bountiful, he is actually niggardly, and that claiming to be truthful, he may be bluffing. And that his care of the man and the woman is a mere pretense. A cover for the fact that he is really denying them their proper status as his equals. And if the first hurdle for the serpent was the word of God, the final one is the character of God. The first hurdle for the serpent was the word of God. The final one is the character of God. So Adam and Eve accept the slur of the enemy, the slur on God's character, and we have seen the results ever since. And his method is deception. Jesus said, talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father? He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whatever he speaks, whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie because he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of liars, father of lies. So we have a way through the wilderness. We have a war, but we have a weapon. And the primary weapon, as we sung today, is the truth of God's word. And I, think, I want to pose something here that I think is very striking we notice that Jesus has three responses to the devil's temptations and all three of them of the word as we're spoken in the songs and uh, reading the word today. Jesus' response to the devil's temptation, three time, he quotes three times from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6 and 8, twice from 6, once from 8, and it appears that these are the very scriptures that Jesus is reading at this time. He is meditating on these chapters of Deuteronomy. And I want to make a point here. If Jesus is having his quiet time and this is the source of his his retort, the source of his defense or offense against the enemy, what does that mean for us? It is not so much, listen, it is not so much you know, we get scholars get caught up a lot about the particular answers that Jesus had against the temptations. A lot of focus on commentaries says, why did he answer him with "Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by the living word of God, through the breath of God." Why? And they, you know, they extract it and they do their commentary. And I think we miss something very, very important. It's not so much the particular verses that Jesus quotes. But that he quotes these particular verses—it's a little hard to get in your mind. It's not that he has, not that he quotes these particular verses, but that he has particular verses to quote. The scripture Jesus is reading and meditating on on that particular time provided the necessary response to that particular assault. From Satan. He was in the word. You know, the Bible is not a book of promises and, and all these times that we sort of care, we we categorize them as Okay, now if I'm tempted to turn stones into bread, then I have to respond with Deuteronomy six sixteen. And and no, God's word is alive. It's it's God breathed, Second Timothy three sixteen said, it's profitable. And God's design is for us to be in it daily, having quiet time, meditating on it. I can't count the number of times over the years, and it seems to be increasing more and more the older, in 44 years, how many times I'm going through my regular readings of Scripture, and a verse comes out in a whole new light, in a whole new revelation to something applicable to what I'm going right in that time. And I had never seen it, maybe the hundreds of times I've read it before. And life comes to it, and it breathes life into me. I have a response to the temptations and trials and circumstances I'm in. This is what's happening here. Jesus has not come so prepared with his promise book. His living experience of the word comes alive in the current assault, and God provides him the bread of the word in response. We can understand our need for God's word, the scriptures. But here we have Jesus, the, son of, the very son of God, that John calls the word of God incarnate. He didn't need, I mean, it doesn't seem like he would need written words. He was there back in Genesis 3 in the serpents assault on Adam and Eve. He saw all the history running before him. He's the creator of all the earth and all him, all things consist, yet we have a Savior who is incarnate word, looking to the scriptures and saying, It is written. Shaping this contours of always thinking every day, all the time. If Jesus' survival depended upon the daily medit- meditation of scripture, what about us? What about us? I think it was Matt Z pointed out, what if God showed up Mount Tabor? I think it's you shared the story and said he's going to share his word for thirty seconds. Just 30 seconds. How many of us would go up there? But God appeared and said, I'm going to speak my living word. We would be there. But that's what God's word is it's God's word. God's word is God's word to us. And every day, He can speak out of it. All the time. Scriptures are our only weapon, or our primary weapon against our adversary. So, we have a way of war and a weapon now let 's look at the temptation and get this a little bit more on the ground level. But remember Jesus didn't it wasn 't so much that Jesus had a particular word for that instance as that he had a particular word. Does that make sense let 's look at these temptations. the stones into bread. What's going on here? Jesus is alone in the wilderness. He becomes hungry, and the devil appears to him and says, If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. We're all familiar with the temptation. Many commentators think that since he said, If you are the Son of God, that he's challenging Christ's identity and his mission. And that's true. But in the Greek, this is a phrase called a first class conditional clause. Dun-dun-dun. Basically, it means it says, if this is true, it necessarily follows that this result is true. Okay? If this is true, which is accepted, all right, then this necessarily falls, follows. In other words, it's like saying, if rain, if rain is water, then it necessarily follows that rain is wet. Sort of like a logic phrase, right? Am I getting that right? So the devil is not so much... Confronting his identity, and yes, on one level he's trying to say to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Prove it by making stones into bread. Right? So, yes, on one level he is saying to Jesus, if you are the, if you are the Son of God, prove it. But on another, far more subtle level, I believe he is questioning God's providence. In other words, he's questioning God's goodness in Christ's circumstance. In other words, he'd be saying, "If God is your father, let him show it. If God is your father, let him show it. In these circumstances alone, he should show up and provide bread out of stones. That makes sense. What he is doing, he's getting to Jesus." Not through just directly assaulting him or his character, he's creating doubt. In other words, you say, why in the world would a good father be letting you eat stones when you could have bread? He is not primarily getting to Jesus to prove, to disprove his identity, even though he may be doing that, but he is assaulting Jesus' identity through sowing doubt about the father's good intentions. And Luke's gospel gives us some great insight here. Luke's gospel inserts the genealogy right after the baptism. Matthew, as you know, inserted it at the very beginning of the book. Luke's gospel, right after the baptism, he says Jesus supposedly being the son of Joseph. He goes all the way down to Adam, and he ends Adam, birth to Adam, the son of God. So right after that, it says the spirit leads Jesus into the desert. Why does he do that? I think Luke is trying to make a connection for us to see the parallelism between Jesus Christ and Adam. So scholars would say Luke is making the point that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, right? He's the second. He's the last Adam, right? Adam is a type of Christ, it says in Romans 5. So what Luke is trying to tell us that there's a parallel here. And a lot of times we just focus on the success of, of the second Adam, and, and, and turning the curse of the first Adam. But we also must understand that as they parallel Adams in that sense, they also are probably in some shape and form like Adams. And we find this to be true, right? Look at the temptation of Adam Eve by the serpent. What does the serpent do? He doesn't come with a frontal assault Like, if you are Adam, then, right? No, he gives gives that subtle question, suggestion, the slur against God's intentions. And he sows distrust in their hearts with that snarky argument. Has God really said? Suggesting doubt. Adam's sonship was rock solid. Eve's daughtership was rock solid. So Satan doesn't focus on it. He focuses on God's intents. Satan craftily questions God's character and his motives. And he's not accusing Adam, he's accusing God. And that's what, exactly what the devil is doing with Jesus right now. Yes, he's assaulting his, his identity. Yes, he's assaulting him, his mission. But he's getting to it through assaulting the character of God. And he does the same thing for us. This is so important for us today and understand the anatomy of temptation. Namely, the force of the devil's assault on Jesus was not so much to get him to question who he was, if you are the Son of God, but to sow the seeds of doubt about God's character, to alienate Jesus from his Father through doubt and distrust. And Jesus responds, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. He said, My situation is certainly... Seems desperate, but never as desperate as it would be without the scriptures. My situation is desperate. I acknowledge the circumstances, but I cannot ever imagine being in these circumstances without the holy scriptures of God to live on. To Him, there's a matter of life and death. His life would be fatal without it. So Satan sows doubt. His primary task is undermine the word of God and thus alienate us from God by sowing doubt and distrust. And he's been doing this since the garden and he's doing it in Jesus Christ's life and he will do it in our lives. Some of you here today, I suspect, You'd be swimming in a sea of doubt right now. And you think it's primarily intellectual. They just can't get the facts aligned. God doesn't make sense. Your life doesn't make sense. And doubt flows in. The application... Here would be that doubt comes, which is not primarily an intellectual reaction. Doubt primarily comes when our experience contradicts or controverts our expectations. Doubt comes when your experience contradicts or conflicts with what your expectations are. Psalm 73, the psalmist is, is expressing this sort of spiritual vertigo, he goes through. I came close to slipping because when I looked at the unrighteous, they were prospering. Everything was going well with them and everything in my own life, I'm serving God, I'm doing everything right and everything is going to hell and to pot. And doubt comes. To the psalmist, it comes because his personal experience has become a reality to him that he didn't have before. He understood injustice, he understood suffering, but it was always out there, right? Somebody else. And then when suffering and justice came to roost in his house, on his porch, he doubted, he stumbled, he wavered. I think we experience that. I do. All the time. <laughs> God, I should be having bread right now and all I have is stones. I'm alone. I'm desperate. I'm troubled. And I think to some degree, we we experience doubt too when... when you know, like C.S. Lewis said, I shared this before, we think forgiveness is a wonderful thing until we have to forgive someone, right? It's always out there, right? Yes, forgiveness is spoken 33 times in the new test, indeed commanded, right? But we just assume we're never going to get offended. We just assume it's somebody else. that Get it away from it, you know? And then when it hits us face-to-face and our personal experience of somebody offending us or hurting us or betraying or letting us down, disappointing us. And we realize this is not what I expected. I'm getting stones instead of bread. And you doubt. When our personal heart experience contradicts what our mind knows is true, it creates doubt. Doubt what happens when you experience what seems to be rocks of wilderness to deprivation and not bread what happens the scripture commands us 2nd Corinthians 5 says faith we walk by faith and not by sight faith is holding on to what you know to be true in spite of how things appear to your heart and this is one reason the primary reason Jesus responds to the devil with the word Just a little advice about doubts for those of you who are struggling right now. You must learn to doubt your doubts. And that's not my phrase. I I think it's a Keller quote or something. And he's quoting somebody else who's quoted somebody else. It's all plagiarism here. You must learn to doubt your doubts. You've got to be honest with yourself and deconstruct your doubts. There's always some dishonesty in your doubts. The psalmist, right, he's struggling, right? He's, he's experiencing the spiritual vertical of doubt because he has to admit he's a little upset, right? Things are not going well with me, and they're going well with that guy who doesn't deserve it. God, this is not right, and doubt comes in. So there is a little pride in our doubts sometimes. It goes like this. When you doubt, what you're really saying is this. Because I can't see a purpose in this, a purpose in this wilderness, there must not be one. Just because you don't see a purpose in your circumstances doesn't mean there isn't one. Back in the garden, look when the serpent assaulted God's good intention. How did Eve and Adam, by inference, respond? She didn't have enough bandwidth of the word. How does Eve respond? She had one command, one, one command in a garden of yes, just one. And when the devil questions God's goodness, how does she respond? She goes, well, surely God has, and she's sur- racking her mind. What did God say? What did God say? And and she goes. Surely God said that we should not. We can eat of every tree of the garden. Okay, I got that. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We said we should not eat and not touch. And she adds. She adds to God's command. She can't even get the word. <laughs> but Jesus here proves that the son of God, the very word of God is living and dwelling in the world and dependent upon such a way that he says, you cannot live life. I cannot survive apart from living and drinking and eating and abiding and meditating on this word. So what's the lesson here? The word is the only weapon powerful enough to shape your expectations. The word is the only weapon powerful enough to shape your expectations to see God through the storm. Nahum 1.3, one of my favorite verses of the Old Testament, says his way is in the whirlwind and in the storm. And when you dwell on God's word, he gives you eyes to see, a perspective to see. These circumstances are under his divine providence. And doubt is destroyed and cast away. Giftedness. I mean, we face our circumstances a lot of ways. Me, my I, I giftedness, my skill sets, my raw talent trying to change my circumstances, but none of it is enough to survive the attacks of our enemy. The only way to fight this battle is with a deep and abiding experience of God's word. Self-preservation will never save us through the wilderness. Only God's word has a sheer, and that's what Jesus is saying, has a sheer raw power to tether us to a marriage that's not working. To reconcile us to that relationship that is alienated, to tether us to local church when it struggles, to help us cling to God without doubt when life seems a virtual contradiction of his word. Jesus' words here remind us that it's a matter of life and death. It's not just a matter of good, better, and best. It's a matter of survival, my friends. Why don't we see this? My most common refrain when I'm talking to young men or young women is that, do you read the word? And, and the most common response is, I don't, I don't. And I think to myself, we're like the seven sons of Sceva. You know that story in Acts, right? These guys are going out and they go, oh, I'm going to cast out some demons here, you know? You know, they're Jewish, they're Jewish exorcists, right? And they find this guy who's demonized. Okay, now we're going to test our power, you know? And they go, we cast you out by the name of... That, but then by the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. We're like that, right? We're just, we don't have a grasp of the word. We just don't have an experience of it. We're just trying to live this life without a compass. And you all know the story in Acts. What happens? This guy says, I know Jesus. I know Paul. But you, and he beats him up. Right? And these guys go, some guys go run off in their underwear. Not only does it beat them, he takes all their clothes off. I mean, he rips them off. I, sometimes I think we're like that. We're expecting to walk in this spiritual battle that is very clear in the New Testament in the Bible that we have an enemy armed with cruel hate. It's not flesh and blood, it's principalities, it's powers. The world forces of darkness that have launched themselves up against us. And we don't read the word. We don't read the very weapon God's given us. I was determined to stay calm. Stay calm. It's not my nature. Okay. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Only the word of God can go deeper into the core of our heart and the root of our doubt and respond to the onslaught of our foe. Temptation number one. The other two will go faster, trust me because temptation, too, is really the, the throwing himself off the temple is really a similar temptation, just a little different shade, okay? A little different angle. Like the first temptation, on one level, Satan is saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, prove it now by forcing your Father to rescue you from this fatal fall, right? Throw yourself down now. Now, I've never been tempted to throw myself off a roof of a house. So I don't know, sometimes I think, what in the world? None of us would be, I'm crawling up the roof, I'm terrified of heights, and I'm looking over the edge, you know, over a cliff or something, and just get back, you know? So maybe on one level, Jesus, he's saying to Jesus, yeah, prove it, prove it, prove it, okay? Just throw yourself off, have a dramatic miracle, everybody will know you're the son of God, right? But I think it in a far more subtle way, he is suggesting, sort of like the first temptation: you can ignore your father's good, good, uh, where am I later? Good ways. You can ignore your father's good ways and still expect him to rescue you. You can ignore God's good ways and still expect him to rescue you. And just like the garden serpent says, "You will not die." Just throw yourself off. God is dependable. You can obtain God's purpose or will apart from his ways. You can get it all without careful attention to God's ways. And it's a presumption, isn't it? But his goal here is to breed discontent. It's a presumption that puts God in your place, excuse me, in your service, right? God is useful. Make God useful, but not worthy. Like the ark, the ark with the Philistines, you know, when the, 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 the Israelites go out and they, go, they, they, they fail before the Israelites during the time of uh, Samuel, and they go, oh, we got it, we got this rabbit foot, right, back at camp, it's called the ark of God, and we're going to bring this thing and he's going to deliver us, and what happens? They fail, and the ark goes into the Philistines' territory. And that's what the devil would love to do with us, to see God just as a useful gift in our lives. We don't have to conform to his image. We don't have to try. We don't have to strive. We don't have to obey his word. Just expect him to show up. He's not assaulting Jesus. He's assaulting the character of God through a promise, a misrepresentation of God's ways. God should show up for you. Upon demand, now. And what do you do with that? Because the devil's now quoting scriptural in a classic out of context quote. You know, throw yourself down from the temple and angels will bear you up. You know, if you read the rest of Psalm 91, it's obvious it's a psalm of trust, not a psalm of demanding God to show up. He says, oh yeah, it is written too. And Jesus on the classic understatement on the other hand, it is written. And Jesus, with his view of the hierarchy of Scripture, how Scripture interprets Scripture, how principle determines practice, quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to test. But he continues. If you read 16 and verse 17, he says, But you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. That it may be well with you. What's he saying? If you diligently keep not just the commandments of the Lord your God, you must keep His testimonies. You may hold them to your heart, obey Him, embrace Him, think about Him, meditate on Him, and His statutes. Not just his statutes and commands, his commands and his many commands, but his testimonies, his stories, which he commanded you. You do this right, it will go well with you. Friends, listen, principle must always shape our practices. If you don't have a grasp of all the scriptures, if you don't have an overarching view, you're not meditating day and night, let it shape the contours of your thinking. Someday you're going to find yourself demanding God to show up, and he won't. You know, sometimes I think we're more reformed than Paul, and I've said that a lot. We, we think, well, God, I have so much grace that it really doesn't determine my future, because God's always there, because of the, 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 the the death and the blood and the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not knowing that there's God commands us to do his word. Let me just give you two ways or two applications that show up here. Two follies, or one folly and one practice. I've heard Doug Wilson always says folly has a long fuse. And one folly that I think is really prevalent in this generation is the folly of intellectual laziness. Versus the hard, long, hard word work of hours of reading the word of God. And letting it shape the contours of our thinking and giving optics and everything else. Now it's sort of the other way around. And I think probably the biggest, most blatant, obvious uh, result of technology is blogs. You know, I've been, I've been a pastor for many years, you know, most of my married life. You know, in the early days, there was this earnestness for the, you said in the 70s, for the Word of God when it was spoken, people would go into the Word of God and they would seek to confirm it. Now, what people do, generally, when I hear an argument against what I preached or what the elders have preached or the pastors preached, it's usually from somebody looking at a blog somewhere and saying, I'm having struggles with this because I read this on the internet. And the problem is, you don't know if that blog has been read by two people or 10 million people. All you really know is that the SEO on that blog is better than anybody else's, and it ends up on that front page. And I do this as an exercise once in a while. I go and I search up, look up, what is the use of rod in scriptures? That's a real controversial one, right? How is a rod used? And, and like on the first page, the last time I did, there was this this article by a guy who wrote, he said, well, Solomon backslid, right? Here's his whole premise. Proverbs are not supposed to be part of the scriptures. Proverbs would have most of the description of child discipline, child rage, all this stuff. You know why Solomon wrote it? Because he didn't want us to do it. He wanted us to know that he backslid later in his life. So we can just write off all those scriptures on discipline. And I think to myself, does he not know that Proverbs was quoted at least 12 times in the New Testament? (laughs) You know, by Jesus and the New Testament writers? But see, what happens when people read this stuff, you know, they're they're like deer in the headlights. Whoa, 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 that's so powerful. I can't, you know, whoa, whoa. And... (laughs) And what's happening here, here's why that happens. Here's why those blogs have such a powerful influence. Because people are not reading the Word of God. That's why. That is the primary reason. God has designed His Word to, sh- to, to, to do the hard, long work to read His Word over and over and over and over many years of life till it shapes the contours of your thinking. So when you read that blog, or you go to that blog, you go, like experience. I go, no... I don't think so. Right? I don't know the specific verses sometimes, but I think the the, the the word is in me enough that I go, no, 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 no. I can't quote scripture in verse, but I just know it's wrong. But we don't have that because... It's, it's a form of intellectual laziness. It's just easier to spend three hours on the web and get my whole theology of parenting or gender roles or sexuality or all these things, not knowing that this person could be an adversary of the very living God that we love. Now, I'm going behind. And we forget You know, Satan always promises a blitzkrieg, like a lightning attack. Everything gets now. Everything happens now. And we forget that. And we've said this a long time. That walking with Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. And we forget that most good comes through a long obedience in the same direction. The devil says, throw yourself down, go for the dramatic, take action, expect God to show up. And when God doesn't, Satan points his bony finger at God and then at you and he alienates you from God. So I don't want everything to God because he didn't show up in my case. I remember years ago we had an elders retreat and we were just sort of dreaming and thinking about what the future of our church would be. And some people said, God, we need to have a youth ministry. And some people say, be nice to have... This is when we didn't have older people in our church. You know, it'd be nice to have somebody like the Nops here, the Winslows. <laughs> nice to have some empty nesters here, you know. Anyhow. But it just, I think we sort of struck, it, it sort of struck us. We say, whoa, we just want an ordinary church. We just want a church that passes the baton to another generation, that loves the preached word, that loves to do God's will. And that struck me. When I think about it, I said, oh my God, Lord, in Portland, an ordinary church is actually quite extraordinary now, you know, because of all, you know, all the hipster churches and all the homogenous churches out there. It says, it, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, I, recently, I, last year I turned 60 and, and, and it was the last year of homeschooling. Quarter, some of you heard this story, but I'm going to share it again because it's important. And I, and we finished homeschooling May of last year, right? I turned 60. The kids graduated. The last kids graduated high school. And we ended a quarter century of homeschooling. And I was going to tattoo my arm right here to sty right? Which means it is finished. <laughs> Ostensibly <laughs> for a witness to my unsaved friends, Right? And they say, what does that mean? So, well, it means it is finished. That's what Jesus quoted on the cross, right? And opened the door. But really, it was, I'm done. 25, <laughs> 34 years, half of our, all of our marriage life, shaping the contours, shaping, whittling, uh, cutting, uh, working on our kid's character, reading them the word, you know? And just this Christmas, we have a shared, we have a progressive dinner and my neighbor came to me and he wasn't drunk yet. So I know he, he was sober and he was sharing this genuinely and sincerely. Um, And he said, he said, where are your twins? You know, just, you know, eight or nine couples and we're just having dinner again. I go, well, they're, this is adult function. They're still kids, you know, brats, you know, (laughs) (laughs) not really. He goes, why aren't they here? I go, and I thought, well, why? Why, why? why? And he said, some, to this extent, he said, your kids show that there's order in this disorderly world. Your kids show that there's stability in this unstable world. And he said, they gave me hope. I like your kids. you know." And, uh, and it struck me that those 34 years, those 25 years of homeschool, were only... Pre- it was a... It it is my witness now in my neighborhood. My neighbors who who have heard the gospel and know we're Christians are drawn to that beauty because of those 25 years of shaping the contours of our kids with the word of God. And the stability they see, they long for. And now I realize I got 30 more years of witness and I don't have to do (laughs) Tetelestai. Anyhow, the point is it's a long obedience in the same direction. My kids are simply just a prism, just a refraction of light that, of input that we put into them over 30 years. But parental folly has a long fuse, my friends. You can't put it off. Don't put off the Word of God and the training, the discipline, and the shaping, the contours of your kids' lives with the Word of God. It may be 10 years, it may be 20 years, and it will disqualify you. I know we have a lot of young couples in here, and I can't, there's something that's not so much, so top-of-the-mind awareness for me that we do get it right, you know, that we take seriously and not just say they're going to turn out okay just merely because we're Christians. It doesn't happen that way. I conclude. The third and final temptation, a crown without a cross, I'm just going to read the rest of this and we'll get this done quickly. A mission without the wilderness of suffering. Here we have, no, if you are this, there's no, if you are the son of God, it's face-to-face combat and a stark promise of a kingdom. Do you see what's happening? Satan is acknowledging that Jesus is the messianic king. Jesus, you can have your kingdom, but, Jesus, but Satan misses it. Jesus is the Davidic king who will come and make all things right. But this king cannot be a king apart from the suffering servant. This lion must be a lamb. No messianic kingdom could ever come apart from the suffering of the lamb for the sins of the world. And here's the application. The devil tempts us every day with the same temptation. He promises that if we seek to save our life, we will keep it. He always promises the blessing of the Beatitudes without the cross. And he will tell you, you can have your kingdom without being poor in spirit. You can be comforted apart from mourning. You can get everything you want on this earth without being meek. Just demand your rights. Seek your marital needs and your personal needs. Weaponize your victimhood. And you can receive mercy without being merciful. That's what he says. He's armed with cruel hate. He wants to undermine God's word. He wants to tell you you can have peace and mercy without giving it out. You can have God's will apart from his ways. So you see how doubt is sown? We can read the Beatitudes over and over and you realize that there, there, that there is to be any way of flourishing that must first likely pass through the wilderness. Someone has said Jesus' life was a Gethsemane. So this temptation probably went to the core of Jesus. Would he have a kingdom apart from suffering? And Jesus' answers, no. Be gone, Satan. It is the same heat which he rebukes Peter's same suggestion. He says, get behind me, Satan, when Peter rebukes him for his prediction of suffering. This is an unimaginable thought. A crown without a cross. God's way for Jesus is through the wilderness of the cross, and so shall it be for us. But you know what? This is not the last temptation. There's another final assault of Satan where he challenges Jesus with, if you are the Son of God, and it's at the tree. It's when all humanity in league with Satan hurls the insult in the temptation to save yourself. Matthew 27, he 40 says, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Someone has said the greatest miracle Jesus ever did was the very miracle he did not do. And when he did not come down from that cross, he could have called on 12 legions of angels and the host of heaven would have risen up to defend him, but he didn't. And when he did not do a miracle, there he achieved the miracle of miracles, the reconciliation of the world to God. And by not saving himself, Jesus did something infinitely more powerful. He saved you. And he proved that whoever saves his life loses it. Bruner, commentary, writes this the devil, in effect, tempted Jesus to save himself three times in the wilderness. Three times the devil tempted, no commanded Jesus to advance his life. He deserved it. By a miraculous feeding, a miraculous jumping, and a miraculous mission. But in all three cases, he threw his life away by staying hungry a little longer, by not leaping into God's hand immediately or without a command, and by not winning the world that that way in an instant. Jesus' faith in God led him to the modesty where rocks stayed rocks where Jesus walked back the stairs, down the stairs of the temple and nothing striking happened and where the winning of the kingdoms of the world was left to a long death march, a steady historic walk to a cross. And my friends, when you see Jesus saying no, no to the enemy, no at the cross, it frees you to say yes to God in the desert and wilderness of deprivation. That's the word of the Lord. In the whirlwind and storm is his way. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye ye so dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. Amen. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we just thank you that your word is precious. And will always accomplish its work, Lord. We need you. We ask you to come as we share the communion table together in your presence and confirm your word in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome to the table you're a believer and been baptized, we welcome you to partake in this feast of remembrance and celebration in the Lord's goodness. They did not come down for the cross, but on the cross for our sake. Amen. Amen.